More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Well, hi everybody, Julie here. I am very honored and incredibly intrigued today to have a chat with today's guest. You know, I get to talk to a lot of interesting people, but not a lot of academics. And I think when you're in a crisis, it, it's not just the politicians and the lawmakers and the scientists that you need, but you need the people who understand human nature, the academics, those trained in the humanities, who even understand literature and history to comment on not just what's gone wrong, but what are the conditions that made that possible? And so today my guest is Belgian psychologist, Matthias Desmet. He has many academic accolades. I, I don't think I could even run through them all, but I think most people know you as the world's leading expert on mass formation as it relates to the COVID pandemic. And I certainly first heard about you because you were mentioned by uh, Robert Malone. And he is a professor of clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium and a practicing psychoanalytic psychotherapist. And he's authored over 100 peer-reviewed academic papers. I was very lucky to get an advanced copy of your new book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, which I believe is coming out on June 23rd. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's, it's actually appeared yesterday in uh, the United Kingdom already. So already. Um, next week, Thursday, I guess, in, in the <laughs> You know, this is a really spectacular book. I think it's it's one of those books. I mean, I just read it online. It was digital. But if I had a paper copy, it would have been one of those books where I dog-eared and underlined so many things. There wouldn't have been many bits that are untouched. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting things that struck me throughout is that I think we tend to think of psychology as an individual phenomenon. We think of the mind, our individual reasons for acting, particular person's weaknesses or capabilities. But your interest is in how populations, groups of people en masse process phenomena like obsessions with science and technology and climate hysteria and woke culture, whatever that means, you know, and how that spreads virally through a population. And in the course of doing all of that, you weave together such great insights from the history of astronomy and philosophy and give us this very solid insightful walk through what the enlightenment did for us but also maybe what it didn't do for us so can we start with a very basic i think psychological issue that just burns in my mind constantly and that is what motivates human beings what do we care about what button do you have to push if you want to control a person yeah, well, it makes me think Im immediately of uh, what Spinoza said about the human being, namely that desire is the essence of a human being. So you actually, if you control desire, you can control a human being. And that's what um, everybody, and, and, and you can also, of course, if you can control the anxiety of a human being, you also can control a human being. So there are several approaches you could take to control human beings. Uh, but propaganda usually, for instance, uh, the, the, the science, you could say, or the practice that um, cultivates uh, the control of the human mind is usually called propaganda or public relations, human relations, and so on. And these people usually focus on both anxiety and human desire. So there is both a negative approach and a positive approach to the control of the human being. I guess the negative approach is a... Is a, is a is the focus on anxiety, the positive approach is the, is the, is the focus on a human desire. Is fear more a more powerful desire than something positive like love or attraction or relationships? Well, hmm. Hmm, I guess fear, if governments want to control or no matter whom wants to control population, I think the the that fear is, is 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 the most or anxiety is the most the first candidate to to control a human being yes you know, your book starts in a very interesting way a bit of a surprising way and you mentioned that uh i mean i think many of us were just becoming aware 
of totalitarianism maybe hadn't even heard the term prior to two years ago, but you say that even by 2017, you could no longer deny it, that the, the grips of governments on private life was growing tremendously fast. Can you tell us a little bit, I mean, can we start just by explaining what is totalitarianism and when and how did you start to see it emerging out of a different yeah. context? Well, yes. Totalitarianism is a relatively new um, uh, type of state system, which emerged for the first time in the 20th century. Many people forget that. Many people um, think that totalitarianism is the same as a classical dictatorship, but it isn't. Before the 20th century, there were classical dictatorships, but there were no totalitarian states. And a classical dictatorship essentially is, some, is, is based on a very primitive, simple psychological mechanism. It's just based on the fact that there is a small group, a dictatorial regime, that has such an aggressive potential that the population is scared of it, and that the population accepts that the small part, the small group, imposes unilaterally um, its social contract uh, to the population. So that's, plainly speaking, that's a, a classical dictatorship. But in a dictatorial regime, an entirely different, a different psychological mechanism is at work. A, dictator, a, dic, uh, um, a totalitarian state, sorry, a totalitarian state is based on a completely different psychological mechanism. In a totalitarian state, we always, and the classical examples, of course, are, are uh, Nazi Germany and, uh, and Stalinism or, or, or com communism, um, the Soviet Union. Um, in a totalitarian state, there is always first the emergence of a mass formation in the population. That means that a part of the population, usually 20, 25, 30%, um, becomes fanatically convinced of a certain ideology, a certain narrative. Um, and then this small part of the population, uh, with the help of, 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 a, of, a, of a few leaders, uh, succeeds in seizing control of the state apparatus and establishes a new kind of state a totalitarian state. And the difference, like in a classical dictatorship, the point of gravity is always in the elite, in the dictatorial regime. That means that if a part of the elite is eliminated, usually the classical, the, the dictatorship will collapse. In a totalitarian state, the point of gravity is not in the elite. It's always in the masses. The masses that are in the grip, fanatically in the grip of a certain narrative. And Consequently, if you eliminate a part of the totalitarian elite, you will see that nothing happens. They are just replaced by other people and the system continues as it did before. There are several other differences, of course. For instance, also, um, a, a classical dictatorship controls public space and political space. A totalitarian state controls public space political space and private life just because the totalitarian state has a huge secret police namely this part of the population that fanatically believes in um in a narrative or, or the or the state ideology and that makes that uh, totalitarian states has, has a much much more suffocating grip on uh, daily life so that's a few differences. So essentially, if you want to understand what a totalitarian state is, you always have to understand what mass formation is, what this specific uh, kind of, what the specific psychological um, process is that is usually referred to as mass formation or as crowd formation, um, sometimes as mass psychosis, but uh, I always prefer the term uh, mass formation. Um, but that's so that's crucial and that's what my book is about and uh, once you understand that the totalitarian state is characterized by this process of mass formation you also understand why um, totalitarianism emerged for the first time in the 20th century just because this process of mass formation of crowd formation became increasingly strong throughout the last few centuries until in uh, the beginning of the 20th century, it became so strong that the masses uh, could seize control of society. And that's when totali the totalitarian state emerged, the first totalitarian states, states emerged. And back in 1951, 
Uh, Hannah Arendt, the German Jewish philosopher who wrote this wonderful book, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, warned us already. In 1951, she warned us already that uh, we had seen the collapse of uh, Nazism and uh, we would probably uh, see the collapse of uh, communism or of, uh, of the Soviet Union very soon, she said. But, she said, we will see the emergence of a new kind of totalitarianism. A new kind of totalitarianism, which is no longer a fascist totalitarianism, but a kind of totalitarianism, totalitarianism, she said, that is led not by gang leaders, such as Stalin and Hitler, but by dull bureaucrats and technocrats. In other words, she anticipated the emergence of a technocratic totalitarianism led by dull bureaucrats and technocrats, technocrats and based on technological control. And that's what we are at risk of today. And that's what I, in the beginning of 2017, started to feel that we were ready for this new totalitarianism, this new technocratic totalitarianism. There were different signs of that. And um, I started to take notes on the phenomenon of totalitarianism, try to understand it, try to understand the historical process that led to totalitarianism. And then uh, during the Corona crisis, I noticed that uh, we, had, uh, we were taking a huge leap forward in the direction of technocratic totalitarianism. And then um, last year in August, I started to write. Um, and four months later, I finished uh, my book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, and now a book which uh, was translated uh, in English now among several other languages. Um, Thank you so much for, for giving us that distinction. One of the things I see very commonly is people, uh, the default position seems to be to blame the particulars of government, to blame particular leaders right now in Canada. Oh, if only Trudeau would resign and in the States, if only we had an elected Biden or it's uh, Boris Johnson's fault or it's, but the point you make that I think is so crucial is that they are relatively inconsequential. What we need to understand are the, the foundations that made their election possible and will make their replacement possible. So can, can you talk a little bit more about, so my understanding what you're saying and from, and from your book is that totalitarianism is fundamentally psychological in a mass way and fundamentally narrative driven. Can, and, and also, as you say that this is a, a relatively new phenomenon, this didn't happen and maybe it wasn't possible prior to the 20th century. So why is that? Why, why is this, why has this happened? now and at no other point in history previously and how does the essential narrative get going yes 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 indeed the elite plays an important role in totalitarianism but less important than people uh, uh, usually think uh, the the essence of totalitarianism is indeed in um in a, the mass in the crowd that is in the grip of a certain ideology and um even more the root cause, the root cause of totalitarianism ultimately has to be situated in our, in the, in the view on man and the world that became dominant uh, throughout the tradition of enlightenment, namely the mechanist view on man and the world, which supposes that the entire universe, the human being included, is a kind of a material machine, a set of elementary particles, atoms, molecules, that all interact with each other according to the laws of mechanics and that can be perfectly understood in a rational way. It's that view on man and the world. That is what I explain in my book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, in the first five chapters. It's that view on man and the world, which through a series of steps led to totalitarianism. And I will... If, if that's okay with you, if that's fine with you, I will, I will, this, uh, I will present these 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 steps in in a in a, in a nutshell. Uh, so, well, the idea that the essence of life can be grasped in a rational way, in a mechanistic way, in itself, and I used to think like that when I was between my 
16 and my 25 years old, I was convinced that everything, that reality, that's what we call the facts or mm. the universe, no matter what, that of course it could be understood in a rational way. And that in the end, all the facts and the reality uh, uh, would be logical. What would it else be than logical? That was also my, my idea. I, I wasn't convinced that everything could be understood in a rational way. So, but um, as soon as you start from that uh, idea, it is literally as if you build a kind of wall around you. You connect the one logical idea to the other. And in this way, you establish a closed logical system, which actually isolates you from the world around you, which prevents you from feeling and resonating with the core of life, because the core of life can never be grasped in a rational way. And it took me until I was 35, 35 years old, old because I've, before I started to, to understand that. And it was just because I started to understand the mathematical basis of systems theory in complex dynamical systems theory. And that's so wonderful about that theory. It actually shows, proves paradoxically in a strictly rational way that the core of all complex dynamical systems is strictly irrational. That's just wonderful. Literally, complex dynamical systems behave in a, as, a, as, a, as an irrational number in mathematics. And that's then I started to understand also why Niels Bohr and several other of the famous um, uh, physicists of the 20th century concluded such things as, and I quote Niels Bohr, when it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. And he, he, was, he was dead serious when he said that. He, he really meant that uh, atoms and elementary particles behave in a strictly irrational way. Um, uh, and that only poetic language or mystical language, for instance, is able to really resonate with the behavior of, uh, uh, of, of elementary particles and can really make you grasp something, be it not in a logical way, of their absurd behavior. And later on, 20 years after Niels Bohr, uh, systems theory showed this in a truly, in a, in, a, in a wonderful way. It showed mathematically that indeed complex dynamical systems in nature are not logical. So, but for me, that changed my life. That changed my life. And then, then I started to understand also better that it was exactly this, this um, uh, mechanist thinking and this, this rationalist idea, this, this rationalist view on man and the world that immediately disconnects you to a certain extent from the world and makes you stop resonating with reality around you, both with nature and with social reality. And that, that's the first step. So there is a certain disconnection. This rationalist view on man and the world leads to an immediate, a direct disconnection, mental disconnection of your environment. But also, it also led, throughout the last few hundred years, to an excessive industrialization and mechanization of the world and to an excessive use of technology. And also that's something that I explain. Um, I give several details, several uh, detailed descriptions of how the use of technology and the mechanization of the world leads to a psychological disconnection. You can prove that in a very, very concrete way, show it in a very concrete way. And that's exactly what happened throughout the last few hundred years. Polls showed that more and more people felt lonely. And just before the corona crisis, the number of people feeling lonely and disconnected peaked, really peaked uh, worldwide. Before, not, not because of. Just before mm -hmm. the corona crisis, over 30% of the people worldwide reported not to have one meaningful relationship. And, um, and the problem was, was almost very strongly correlated with the level of industrialization of a country and with the, with the use of technology. For instance, in, in Western Europe and in Northern America, the problem was worse, uh, was very bad. Like in, in America, um, the US Surgeon General um, reported that there was a loneliness epidemic in the States. And in the UK, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness because she also recognized the, the, the extreme amount of people feeling lonely in, a, in, in the UK. So, and this problem actually, actually got worse. It, it got worse time and time again throughout the last few hundred centuries. And that is the explanation why mass formation became more and more intense and increasingly strong and lasted always longer throughout the last few hundred years. Um, that's something that was well known. The Frankfurter Schule, for instance, Adorno, but also Hannah Arendt, uh, had, had 
observed or, 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 or confirmed that indeed it is the number of isolated people, lonely people, that, um, that uh, makes a, uh, a society vulnerable for mass formation. And so brave human connection and we and we don't know how to get it otherwise is that the idea no, indeed indeed that's what happens in a mass formation mm -hmm. but first there are a few steps in between like the lack of connection uh, the, the lack of social bond leads to a lack of meaning making in life that's typical you can i explain it in my book i won't go in detail but mm -hmm. it leads to a lack of meaning making in life and that in its turn leads to uh, so-called freely floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That is a kind of anxiety, frustration, and aggression that cannot be connected to a mental representation, meaning that people are anxious, frustrated, aggressive, without knowing what they feel anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that is an extremely aversive mental state, because if you feel anxious and you don't know what you feel anxious for, you feel completely out of control. And then when a population is in this state, when many people are in this typical state, something very specific might happen. Um, but maybe I will tell one thing, one more thing first. Uh, mass formation exists as long as mankind exists. But um, the modern masses distinguish themselves from the ancient masses in at least one respect. And it is that the modern masses are so-called lonely masses. That means that the modern masses, for instance, the masses or the crowds that emerged during the corona crisis, do not gather physically. They all, they exist of individuals that all stay at home, but that all listen to the same narratives that are distributed through the mass media. And that state, that state in which a population is in the grip of the same ideas, the same images, the same narratives, the same myths, that state, but in which all individuals are isolated from each other. This is the typical state of lonely mass. And this is the perfect condition in which people are sensitive for propaganda and for narratives distributed through the mass media. And that is what happens. If a population is isolated, if it is dealing with lack of meaning making, if it struggles with free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression, and if a narrative at that moment is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and a narrative and a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, then something very specific might happen. All this free-floating anxiety that makes people feel out of control. If a focus. Might, mm -hmm. Yeah, it might all connect to this uh, object of anxiety indicated in the narrative that is distributed through the mass media. And there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, even if the strategy is absurd, utterly absurd. That's the first step of every mass formation, whether we are talking about the Crusades or about the witch hunts or about the French Revolution or about the emergence of Nazi Germany uh, or, or, the com or, or the Soviet Union or the Corona crisis, we always see the first step is the dissemination, dissemination of a narrative distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and providing a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And once this happened, people feel more in control. They feel that they now can control their anxiety through participation in a strategy. And they also can anticipate a moment where they will be able to satisfy mm -hmm. all their frustration and aggression by directing it at all the people who do not want to go along with the narrative or scapegoat the scapegoat a mass always needs a scapegoat so that's the first important stage of mass formation and then after that first stage a second stage there is a second stage which is more even more important because many people at the same time participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety a new kind of connectedness a new solidarity a new kind of social bond emerges so the effect the experience of solidarity is the core effect, the core experience of a mass formation. A new solidarity, a new citizenship emerges. It is as if people can escape this most crucial problem they had before the mass formation, namely that they all were isolated, disconnected from each other. But 
you could say, of course, yeah, what's the problem? Uh, people felt lonely and now they feel connected again through the mass formation. So maybe mass formation is a good thing. Well, no, the problem is that there is one huge problem. And this was actually a contribution of a Sigmund Freud. He was the one who, uh, that was what Sigmund Freud added to the study of the masses. Mm. Not exactly in, the, in these words, but uh, that was at the bottom line of his message. Namely that a mass or a crowd is a group that is formed not because individuals connect to each other, not because individuals feel solidarity to another individual. A mass is formed because all individuals separately connect to the collective. So the solidarity in a mass is always a solidarity of an individual towards the collective, towards a collective ideal. And even the longer the mass formation lasts, the more all the psychological energy, all the love, you could say, is sucked away from the bond between individuals and is invested in the bond between the individual and the collective. Meaning that, in the end, the solidarity of an individual with the collective is much, much stronger than the solidarity between individuals. And that leads to a very specific characteristic of mass formation and of all totalitarianism. Namely, that after a while, individuals are radically willing to report each other to the collective, to the state. And uh, for instance, I've been, I was talking uh, two months ago, I had this a wonderful conversation with a woman of Iran uh, who lives now in, uh, in Holland here in, in Europe, but who lived in Iran during the revolution in 1979, which was the, which, uh, which was the emergence of a, a, a huge phenomenon of mass formation and the beginning of, a totalitarian, of totalitarianism in Iran. And she described how she had seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the state and how she put the rope around his neck on the scaffold just before he was hung and how she claimed to be a heroine for doing so. That's the typical, typically the end stage of mass formation. Even the strongest bonds between individuals are completely impoverished, became weak, and people are willing to report even the people whom they used to love very much before the mass formation to the collective, to the state, and they do so. And that's typical for all mass formation of all times. They typically do so as if it is an ethical duty to do so. And that's also explained by the corona crisis, for instance. People were all talking about solidarity. And at the same time... Vilify the nonconformist. Right? Can you come again, please? Uh, vilify the nonconformist. And, and, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also, they, for instance, people were talking about solidarity all the time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help him. And government imposed this on the websites of the Belgian, the, the, the Dutch and the European government, for instance. It was stipulated that uh, if someone got an accident, you were not allowed to help him unless you um, uh, had surgical gloves and a surgical mask at your disposal. And then that, and then at the same time, uh, we were all talking about solidarity with the elderly. That's what, uh, why we were doing it all for. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we accepted, or people accepted, most people accepted, that they were not allowed to visit their father and their mother when they were dying at home or somewhere in an institution. So that, that shows how much this solidarity is really a solidarity between individuals and the collective. And that makes people just demand of each other that they sacrifice everything for the sake of the collective. And um, that, that's, that's typical for, for totalitarianism in general. And this, 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 this strange mechanism actually uh, makes that, it, it's exactly the same as hypnosis. It's identical to hypnosis. Technically speaking, it's a process of hypnosis. In hypnosis, all the attention is withdrawn from the environment by a hypnotist and, and then the hypnotist focuses all the attention of, of, of the one who is being hypnotized on one small aspect of reality and consequently the rest of reality disappears into darkness. It is as if it doesn't exist anymore. And this mechanism is, is just incredibly strong. Uh, for instance, a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient 
to focus someone's attention so much on one usually positive aspect of reality, and I have seen this with my own eyes, that a surgeon uh, can cut through the skin, the flesh, even straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation, the patient under hypnosis won't notice it. That happens every year, hundreds of times in University Hospital of, Hospital of, uh, of, of Leuk here in, here in Belgium. So it shows once, and the uh, mass formation is exactly the same. The first stage happens spontaneously. First, people start to be isolated. All their mm -hmm. psychological energy and all their attention is drawn away, withdrawn from, from reality. And then suddenly there is this, this narrative distributed through the mass media, which focuses all the attention on the coronavirus or on a small aspect of reality. And consequently, the rest of reality uh, disappears. And you can tell people uh, as much as you want, as many times as you want, um, that maybe the, the virus will claim a certain number of victims, but that probably the corona measures will claim much more victims. These pe people who are into the process of mass formation, just it won't have an impact on them just because you use representations, mental representations, for instance, the victims of the, of the measures, the children starving in developing countries because of the uh, destruction of, of economy to, uh, as a, uh, by the lockdowns, for instance. You, you, if you try to wake people up and uh, use, give arguments that go against the narrative they believe in, uh, these, nar these arguments won't have an impact simply because you use mental representations that are outside the focus of attention to which no psychological energy is attached anymore in which consequently don't have a psychological impact or, or psychological weight anymore. So that's the problem with mass formation. That's a huge problem. Once people are in it, it's extremely hard to wake them up. Um, and um, uh, but uh, I always add to that. It's that's the most the most crucial mes message that I bring in my book. But as crucial is the following thing: something that was already described by Gustave Le Bon in the 19th century. He said. The people who are not in the grip of mass formation, a small group of them will typically try to wake, to wake the people up that are in the mass formation, and they usually won't succeed. <laughs> but if these people continue to speak out, you will see that they have an, an extremely important effect on the people in the masses. And that is that if they continue to speak out, their dissonant voice will constantly disturb the voice, the hypnotizing voice of the leaders of the masses. And they will make sure that the mass formation doesn't go so deep that the people arrive in this stage where they think it is their ethical duty to destroy the people who do not go along with them. So that's the point. What we have to understand is that it is not because we do not succeed in convincing the people in the masses and in waking them up, that we, have, that we have, yes, rationally, mm -hmm. that we have no impact. We do have an impact. We have an extremely important impact, namely that we limit the depth of the process of mass formation and that we make sure that it doesn't go so far that um, uh, both leaders and masses become convinced that they should destroy the people who do not go along with them. So that's just crucial. And you can see every time and time again in history, historical examples show mm -hmm. that it is exactly at the moment that the dissonant voices stop speaking out in public space, that the destruction campaigns started. That happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union, in 1935 in Nazi Germany. The resistance stopped to speak out in public space because they thought it was too dangerous. And within a period, a period of six months, uh, the, the destruction campaigns started. And there were several other countries where there was also this emerging totalitarianism, but where the resistance didn't stop to speak out and where the mass formation never evolved to her last and final stage and where totalitarianism just didn't break through. And so that's, that's, that's just so important to continue to speak out. Um. 
there's so much to unpack there. And I want to ask you a bit more about hypnosis and how it's broken in the clinical setting and how that, that what the analog is in the, in the group context. But I just want to go back to something you said quite a few minutes ago about this, so, so this pairing um, of, you know, totalitarianism emerging because people lack meaning and because they lack connection, because they're lonely. It, it sounds a bit to me like, what you're suggesting is that totalitarianism is, is a kind of false advertising, that it, it's sort of people are vulnerable because they desire meaning and they're willing to uh, assimilate into the group to get a sense of meaning and connection, but uh, or to get a sense of connection with other people. But what they're really doing is getting fulfilling a deeper need for meaning that is threatening their bonds with other people. So. Back to that first question that I asked you about, you know, what is it that really motivates people? Would you say that our desire for meaning in our lives is more important than our desire for human connection? And, and one of the reasons why I wonder about that is because I'm so fascinated by this question, whether or not human beings are fundamentally tribal and what that means even. And this word collectivism that we hear all the time. And I think one of the theories now is that, well, human beings just, we don't understand ourselves. We don't have a sense of identity. Maybe we can't possibly be happy outside of the group. And that's because we crave connection with other individuals. But, but it sounds to me like what you're saying is that's not so much the case as it is we want meaning for our own lives as individual people. Or am I creating a false dichotomy there? Is it both somehow? <laughs> it's connected. It's connected. connected. Um, you know, uh, people usually spontaneously experience meaning making. They usually have the feeling that... Um, uh, their life makes sense if they really feel connected to each other. That's the point, because the, the first and most important source of the spontaneous experiences of meaning-making uh, is exactly the effects we have on the other. If we see that our existence has an effect on the other, if we see that we can make the other happy, mm -hmm. or that no matter what, that we have an effect on the other, um, then we will spontaneously experience meaning in life. Mm -hmm. For instance, as long as uh, the, the objects we need to survive or to, to live were locally produced, as long as the, the one who produced, who made the objects um, that we need in our daily life knows the one who uses the objects that we, um, uh, that we produce or that we make, Usually, labor was experienced as intrinsically meaningful just because we could see every day with our own eyes that our work, our jobs, our labor had an effect on the other. And that's what disappeared as soon as um, mass production of, of, um, of the objects that we use in our daily life started. Because from then on, the one who made the objects usually didn't know and didn't see the, uh, the people anymore for whom he made the objects. And in that, way, in that way, one of the most direct and spontaneous sources of meaning making disappeared. And that's probably the reason also to a certain extent, not entirely, of course, why just before the Corona crisis, a Gallup World Poll showed that over 60% of the people worldwide reported that they considered their job to be a bullshit job. That means a job of which they felt that it no meaning. had right. no meaning at all. Mm -hmm. And so I think that um, the connection with the, the, the social bond, the connection with the other is intrinsically related to the experience of meaning making. These two go together. If the social bond deteriorates, then the experiences of meaning making will deteriorate, and the other way, the other way around. Well, I think I think the 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 root cause is to be situated in the in the lack of social bond. You, you know, as a human being, as soon as we are born and enter, and even before, and we enter this world, we start to make connection with the other, and uh, a child from the first moments on tries to imitate the expressions on the face of the mother immediately. 
just because it wants to feel. It wants to feel what the mother feels. It, it imitates the, the expressions on her face and it's, it shows signs of joy when the mother imitates the expressions on its face. So you, we immediately see like the, and, and, and if there is no reaction, if there is no uh, resonance between child and mother in this way, the child will start to feel anxious, isolated, and uh, 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 it will usually uh, develop, um, start to develop a kind of uh, a predispos predisposition for, for all kinds of, uh, of psychological disorders. Of course, nobody of us is perfectly connected to the other. We all have certain troubles psychologically, mm -hmm. but still, I think that the quality of the connection with the other probably is the most fundamental um, uh, mm -hmm. The root cause of, of a, if, if of we, a in some sense, if we have a pandemic of anything, we have a pandemic of alienation from our our ability to connect with the world, derive meaning and purpose from the world, our ability to connect to others. I, I want to explain to you, or I want to ask you, um, this this the the factors that you describe sound like they're able to create such a hold on the human mind. Why doesn't it work for everyone? What explains the outliers, the dissidents, the you and I are here discussing this analytically from the outside, looking at this phenomenon, not feeling like we're captured in it, and many, many others fall into that category. Is, is that always true of a mass formation phenomenon? And then what, what, what explains those outliers? Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody really knows. Nobody really knows. It, the, the, as long as mass formation has been studied, it mm. has been observed that there is always a kind of group, a group who doesn't go along with the mass formation. Mm. Um, and this group is extremely heterogeneous. Always. It has always been described like that. It comes from all kinds of jobs, uh, backgrounds, uh, and so on. Intelligence is definitely not a protective factor. And uh, the level of education is even... Uh, negatively correlated. The higher the level of educa education, the more vulnerable for mass formation. Uh, yes. mm -hmm. That was from, we know this from the 19th century onwards. Uh, probably, well, of course, um, as a human being, I think that maybe the most fundamental choice uh, we have to make as a human being, or we just make as a human being, is all is, 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 is uh, to take the easy way and go along with the group we belong to, or to take the more difficult road and to stick to what we think is sincere and honest in life. What we think is the truth, for instance. And um, I think that probably uh, that's also what happens in a mass formation. Most people intuitively are sucked into this process of mass formation, into this dynamic of mass formation, but certain people are resilient, resist, and feel immediately that there is something strange going on and refuse to go along with the group and try to see, uh, to understand what the group believes in, sees that the narrative the group believes in uh, is absurd and becomes even more absurd the longer the mass formation exists, and refuse, prefer to take the, the difficult road and prefer to stick to, to stay loyal to uh, what they think uh, uh, is the truth, uh, or is sincere and honest, and try to speak out against what the group believes in. Yeah, it's hard to reduce this to something else. Uh, many people have tried to, but I think it's extremely difficult um, uh, to 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 find out what actually unifies all these people who do not go along uh, with the masses. Uh, it's a very good question, but I'm afraid I can't. Uh, articulate a definitive answer. Is yeah. it always roughly the same percentage? Would you say whenever we have these mass formation events? Is no, that's yeah. Yeah, that's hard to say. Mm -hmm. Usually, I think about twenty to thirty percent of the people are really into the mass formation, and not so much. Mm -hmm. Then there is the, the the largest group is the group who Middle. is not really in the process of mass formation. The group is who is not really hypnotized. But who knows, and who knows that there is something wrong with the narrative, but who just uh, uh, um, is not inclined to go against uh, the masses, the loudest voice in society, and who prefers to 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 choose for a more 
comfortable position in which they just remain silent and hope that everything stops uh, sooner or later. Um, and then that group is probably usually about 60, 65 percent. Um, uh, and the small, and there, then there is a small group who really speaks out and who says, like, look, uh, we don't agree and we will try to wake up the masses. Um, like, in, for instance, one famous mass formation was in France shortly uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, actually. It was a mass, the, the anti-Semitic mass formation uh, that was caused by the trial of uh, Dreyfus, the Dreyfus affair uh, in France. And um, there was a very small group then, I think about 300,000 people in France in, in total, um, who also went against the masses. Uh, Emile Zola, the famous writer, Emile Zola was the, was the most famous of them. And they actually won. <laughs> they uh, they, uh, they uh, could wake up, the, or they could wake up the masses at least. Uh, they, they could uh, set uh, drivers free and they... they, they, they they, they won against uh, the, this overwhelming majority of people who formed a mass or a crowd, mm. um, an anti-Semitic crowd. So it's definitely possible, this small group, if it can form a group without becoming a mass, that's important. The small group should watch out not to become a mass itself. So... Yeah. Um, you mean like a sub-mass um, within the larger mass or something? Yeah, yes, a small mm -hmm. mass with, which... Um, is going against a large mass. That's extremely dangerous, of course, because then we have two groups, a large mass and a small mass, uh, functioning according to the same destructive principles. Mm -hmm. And in this process, we, we, we see a strong process of polarization in that case in society, and the process in which the small mass usually is destroyed. So uh, uh, it's extremely important that uh, the, the, small, the small group doesn't become a mass itself. Um, and then, of course, it has to form a group without becoming a mass. That means it has to form a group that is formed mm -hmm. um, on the basis of all these connections between individuals, strong connections between individuals, and a group which centers, of which the core of its identity is that all people in the group can just have their own opinion, that there is no such thing as one shared group opinion, mm -hmm. um, uh, which should be uh in which all individuals should participate no the the center the point of gravity of the identity of this group should exactly be that everyone in the group has the right to articulate his opinion and to have his own opinion and that's that's uh freedom a fruitful group yes yeah what perhaps the greatest insight from your book, and there's stiff competition, let me say, but this idea that, that you articulated so nicely a few minutes ago, which is that the, the key job, I mean, when, when the dissenters start to feel hopeless, like, well, nobody's listening to me and I'm not changing the dominant narrative and what's the point and it's just an echo chamber and, but, but the claim you make is that historically and psychologically, those dissenters do have a, an effect on the hypnosis and this kind of persistent sort of erosion of that hypnotic state. Uh, and then you give the example of 1930s in the Soviet, 35 in, in, in Europe. Can you just give us a little more insight into this? So in the context of the hypnosis of an individual, what is it that snaps the person out of it? And then what's the analog um, with these dissenters in the mass formation situation? You know, in a classical hypnosis, usually it is the hypnotist that ends the hypnosis. Right. So that's different in kind, isn't it? <laughs> that's different. That's different because, because in a mass formation, the people who uh, lead the masses and who articulate a narrative in public space that leads to the mass formation usually are hypnotized themselves. That's one of the major differences. The people who lead the masses are hypnotized that's something that was also um, described by Gustave Le Bon, by their own ideologies. So the people who lead the masses usually don't believe uh, the narratives they use, or, or quite often don't believe the narratives they use, but they do believe the ideology from which they are starting. For instance, in Nazi Germany, the Nazi leaders uh, fanatically believed in uh, their race theories. Uh, and in the Soviet Union, the communist leaders fanatically believed in, um, in historical materialism of Marx. Uh, 
And here now, the people who lead the masses fanatically believe, I think, that uh, democracy should be replaced by technocracy and that, uh, that we should establish a kind of transhumanist uh, new society. And uh, that's so typical for totalitarianism. They always have this fanatic belief in a certain ideology which should be used to reshape society, to build an entirely new society, which is always based on a kind of pseudoscientific theory. That's People often forget that, but that's typical of totalitarianism. And that's exactly what we see again now. So the leaders of the masses are in the grip of this ideology. They believe so fanatically in their ideology. They believe so fanatically that the only solution to the misery of the human condition is uh, the creation of a new paradise, a new um, uh, uh, society according to uh, the, their, their own in line with their own ideology. And that's a problem, of course. The hypnotist is hypnotized himself and he can't wake up the masses. So that's one problem. Another problem is like, like of course, that even to the extent that certain people in the masses or, in, or that certain leaders are not entirely hypnotized, they also realize that they should prevent the masses from waking up. Because if the masses wake up, they will start to see all the destruction that happened, all the self-destruction also that happened. And they typically will uh, 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 blame their leaders for it and will kill them. And that's what typically happens if masses They might up. find meaning in their own lives and can't have that. <laughs> no, indeed. indeed. Um, so they, don't, they don't want to wake up. And there is an additional problem. Uh, a mass formation um, is caused or emerges in a society when many people feel disconnected and isolated, as I uh, explained a few minutes ago or in the beginning of the, of the podcast. And, um, but at first sight, it seems that, at first sight, it seems that the mass formation solves this problem, that it creates a new connection, mm -hmm. but it doesn't. Instead, it destroys the connection between individuals even more. Meaning that after the first episode of mass formation, people feel even more disconnected than before the mass formation. So meaning that society is even more ready for a second mass formation. Mm -hmm. And that makes that once a large scale mass formation started, it typically continues until a lot is destroyed. And now that's so crucial once you understand that, so mass formation in the end always destroys itself. So mass, the masses always destroy themselves. Totalitarianism always destroys itself in the end. So and once you understand that, you understand. If you belong to the group that doesn't go along with the masses, you just have to make sure that the masses exhaust themselves, destroy themselves before they destroy you. And the only way to do so is by continuing to speak out. Because if you continue to speak out, the mass formation won't go so deep that they physically destroy you. And you just have to wait until the masses become weaker. And then the small group usually will gain traction, will start to become more powerful in society, and will finally be able to change society. Because, and that's the good news, this small group is going usually is, is usually going through a very fast psychological evolution, it becomes mentally more powerful just because it sees the masses, it sees the dehumanizing impact of the masses. And the small group, if it makes the right choices, will become more and more in touch with the essence of humanity and with the essence of life. That's something that is very well described, for instance, by Solzhenitsyn, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Solzhenitsyn. Look, his book is here on the table with me. It's this book, The Gulag Archipelago. Uh, it's a book uh, that was written on the basis of his um, experiences in the concentration camps of Stalin, a book for which he received the Nobel Prize. It's a wonderful book. And he describes in that book how in the Gulags, um, the prisoners started to behave in a truly beast-like manner, in a beastly way. And... After a while, they, be, they became even worse for each, for each other than the guards were already for them. And they crushed each other's, each other's skulls at night just to steal each other's food and clothes. Um, and, but, he said, and that's what typically happens when a society dehumanizes, 
There was a small group, he said, that refused to behave in the same way. And that went in exactly the opposite direction. Mm. The longer, the more they noticed the pool of the more they observed the pool of darkness they found themselves in, they started to become to become more and more determined to represent a little bit of light in humanity themselves. And they rediscovered under these conditions the principles of humanity, the ethical principles of humanity. And they became more and more loyal to these principles. And Solzhenitsyn describes, and I refer uh, to this episode in my book, in the last chapter of my book, Solzhenitsyn describes, uh, refers, among many other examples, to one prisoner, uh, Ivanovich Gregoriev was given his name, if I remember it well. One prisoner who stood out in this respect, and he refused. He entered the concentration camps in a sickly state. He had rheuma and, uh, and several other medical conditions, but he refused to, uh, to transgress his ethical principles even one time. When they stole his food or his clothes, he just went out, clothed in a, in a bag uh, uh, to work in extremely cold temperatures, minus 40 degrees Celsius or something. It was extremely cold. And or he, when they stole his food, he just refused to steal the food of other people when the guards commanded him to do something that he considered unethical. He refused to do so, no matter what the consequences were for him. And this guy, while most prisoners, no matter how healthy and strong they were, they were when they entered the concentration camps, while most prisoners died in a few weeks or a few months, mm -hmm. he survived it for 15 years. And Solzhenitsyn said, Solzhenitsyn said, I've seen with my own eyes, he said, how this guy, throughout the years he stayed in the concentration camps, became stronger and stronger and stronger, both at the, at the mental level and at the physical level. And Solzhenitsyn says, that showed me, he said, what the impact is of a spotless human mind on the human being, its mind and its body. And of course, not everyone will survive uh, all inhumane circumstances because he or she sticks to the principles of humanity. But it shows us something crucial, I think, that in the years to come, we'll probably again see how the world dehumanizes. And we can try to predict what will happen, but we can't predict. The world and society is a complex dynamical system, and we can never really predict what will happen. But we can be sure of one thing, and it is that we will do our best to stick to the principles of humanity in a dehumanizing world. And that is something in the end. It's that what this small group should do. Reinvent the, the eternal principles of humanity. And that is exactly what will give meaning and sense to the entire process that is going on now. If you look at it from a little bit of a distance, then you see that it perfectly makes sense. What is happening in now with this large-scale mass formation, the first worldwide mass formation, what is happening now is that a large organism is putting pressure on a small organism. A large group is, um, is putting pressure indeed on a small group, pushing it on a way where it wouldn't go without a large group. Um, and which is in this way, it's perfectly the process in which a large organism gives birth to a small organism, to something new. And that's what we need now. We are at the end of a cycle. We see that the tradition of enlightenment with its fanatic, obsessional belief in the power of rational understanding arrived at a point where we, everybody will see that rational understanding can never be the cornerstone of human living together. Rational understanding is important, but it's the first step. It should lead to a, a different way of knowing the world. That's what all major scientists concluded. Our rational understanding is very limited. I will use the words of René Tom, uh, one of the most important mathematicians of the 20th century and one of the founders of systems theory. He said, this part of reality that can be understood in a rational way is very limited. And the rest of reality, 
we can only know by empathically resonating with it. And that's exactly what we are, we are on the verge of discovering or of changing our rational view on man in the world, our rationalist view on man in the world. And take a new perspective on life and on the human being. Develop a new view on man in the world. A view on man in the world in which rationality is considered of secondary importance. We need to be rational, as rational as possible, but just like the major scientists, we should be honest and sincere enough to admit that when our rationality reaches the limit, the absolute limit, and there we should choose or we should, we can, if we want, become aware of a, a different way of knowing, a different way of knowing the world, which is much more a resonating way of knowing the world. Something that has everyone who ever uh, learned an art or a craft knows that there is first this rational stage of the process in which you learn certain rules mm -hmm. that you need to learn the art of the craft. But after a while, that these rational rules, if you practice a lot, that they lead to something else, to a certain feeling with what you're doing, a more resonating knowledge. The samurai in Japan knew, this, knew that very well. They said there is first, if you learn to sword fighting, for instance, there is first a set of rules that you learn. You, you learn in a rational way, uh, a set of techniques. But after a while, you start to develop a certain feeling that transcends mm -hmm. these rational, this rational knowledge, this, this, these rational rules. And at that moment, you have to leave the rules behind. They have this nice proverb saying, first you have to protect the rules of an art, and then you have to break them and leave them behind. And the samurai said, if you go to the battlefield and you didn't succeed in forgetting the techniques you learned, you will die at the battlefield. That that's the point we are we are we are and this new kind of know this knowing the world this new kind of feeling this 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 resonating knowledge uh, offers the most surprising perspectives the most wonderful perspectives for the for the samurai uh, if you really uh, develop this resonating knowledge you developed something like a sixth sense you became aware of 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 danger around you you became aware of of the world around you in a completely different way not through your senses. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and it's much more than that, of course. It gives you a specific strength, a soft strength, a powerful strength, which is not the strength of the ego. And that is what we are about to discover. You're living in a, in a, in a time now, in times now, where this rational ideology, rationalist ideology, will erect one more time. Uh, it will try to impose itself uh, completely to the world. And at the same time, uh, at the same moment, it will show that it is not capable of organizing a truly humane living together, that it will destroy, that it can only destroy humanity in the end. That's what I explain in the third part of my book uh, in detail and in the rest of my book actually as well. Mm -hmm. And that is the perfect moment for something else, a new society to be born, a new way of living together, um, uh, a new uh mean meaning new meaning it's so well. be beautiful this phrase i think if i if i'm quoting you uh correctly that we have to maintain the principles of humanity in a dehumanizing world and i think early on you know for the last year year and a half so many people who were worried about the particular covid narrative engaged directly with the science as a way to battle against this you know follow the science hashtag and the obsessive focus on science but that's really to miss the boat isn't it it's uh, and I'm, I'm so grateful to this conversation because we have we have a crisis not of science we have a crisis of of uh, what got us obsessed with science. We have a crisis of meaning. And if I understand you correctly, the dissenting voices need to give up the 
obsessive project with launching uh, data back across the battle lines and get back to the questions of humanity. You know, as you were speaking for the last few minutes, I couldn't help but thinking as a student of classical history, as a lover of classical classical tragedies that, you know, I often wonder if humans are, are self-destructive by nature, if we just cycle through and live through different tragic stories. And of course, the technical definition of a tragedy is that we have a tragic flaw that according to which we make decisions that propel us, barrel us towards our tragic end. And, but of course, in the tragedies, there's always a catharsis, there's always an awareness and enlightenment, even if not on the part of the hero, on the part of the audience. And, and we're, it seems to me, needing to purge ourselves of our tragic flaw to understand what, what meaning in life is really about. And, and I hope I've, I've understood you correctly. And if I have, then I'm very grateful to that insight and that gift that you're giving us, because it's a hopeful one right? It's not one that is caught in the nets of a scientific sort of echo chamber. It's one in which we can, we can make meaning for ourselves. We don't have to rely on the experts to do it for us. And we ought not, because that's what's gotten us to this point, right? Humans, individuals are meaning makers. That's a, such a beautiful phrase that you have, meaning, yeah. meaning makers. And so I thank you so much for this conversation. I know we're running short on time, but, but let me know, do you have any last words? And then can you tell us how everyone can find your book? Because I think this is a beautiful book. It's an academic book, but it's also accessible. And I think everyone, I know it sounds empty, I think everyone should read this book. This book should be part of our education system, not just in the high school university sense, but collectively, humanity needs to understand these insights if we're to work our way out of this. Yes, well, thank you. Thank you very much, Julie. It's, a, it's, a, it's nice to hear that. Um, well, I hope we all, I hope there is this group of people who, uh, who really stick to their principles. It will be difficult also for me, for everyone, I think. Uh, but at the same time, and we might lose a lot in this process, I think. But at the same time, we might win uh, the only thing that in the end maybe is truly important uh, for a human being, and it is its humanity itself. Um, and we don't know what we will lose. Nobody can know. If we go along with the narrative and with the system, we might also lose a lot because that's the, the characteristic of totalitarianism. In the end, Hannah Arendt said in her wonderful book, uh, The Origins of Totalitarianism, she said, in the end, totalitarianism becomes a monster that devours its own children. That happened in Nazi Germany. That happened in the Soviet Union. So we can never be sure uh, uh, whether or not what we will lose, uh, not when we choose to go along with the narrative, not, not when we choose to go against it, but the only thing we can be sure of is that we will not lose uh, uh, our principles of humanity and that we will not lose our humanity. And that's, I think, that's something that maybe uh, we should keep in mind in the, in the years to come. Um, I uh, will we'll link uh, your Amazon page for your book. I can't help but notice the painting to your left. Is it to your left? I don't know what it is of, but it looks like painting of a lone wolf. That's what I keep thinking as I'm I'm watching the, <laughs> as I'm watching you speak, listening <laughs> yes. to you speak. And if it is, it's a lovely metaphor for. Um, yes, I guess there's a loneliness to being that lone wolf. But there's never loneliness in, in searching for meaning, is there? I mean, even if we don't find it, the, the search is uh, imminently human. And you, I, I, I never interpret the painting myself. I put it there and everyone can interpret it in his or her own way. Um, but uh, art should be, right? Yeah, it's from an artist, a Belgian artist here. And, and uh, yeah, Frank van Haverbeek, yes. Thais, thank you so much. Please keep doing what you're doing. Please, I know it's a lot to offer of yourself to the world, to humanity, but there are many who are very grateful. And I thank you, especially for your time today. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Julie.